Hello and welcome to the next edition of Lights on Europe. Today we speak to Rick Zednik mainly about two topics. First one is his relationship and views on Slovakia because as a dual American Slovak citizen with experience of having lived in Slovakia in the 90s, he has very interesting views of how the turmoil that the country is going through now compares to its post-communist transition. We are also talking about his views of feminine and female leadership, because as a managing director at the Women Political Leaders, a worldwide platform connecting female politicians, he has very interesting views on what female leadership brings to the table and how it can transform global development. So listen to his messages to general public but also to the political party leaders and also to the next European commissioner who will be in charge of equality. Hello Rick, uh, welcome to Lights on Europe. Hello, it's a pleasure to be here. Budeme sa rozprávať po slovensky alebo po anglicky? Uh, lepšie po anglicky, ja si myslím. Um, so you have a long history with Slovakia. You've lived in Slovakia in the very special period in the 90s where you also co-founded some media and you've been very uh, involved and really feeling on your own skin the developments that Slovakia was going through in the 90s. Now thanks are unfortunately because of the political leadership that we've had in the afterwards Slovakia is now going through a very difficult period again, reliving some very painful scandals and corruption um, yeah, history that is now being unleashed. What are your thoughts about it? How much does it make you rethink or think again of the 90s? And, and do you think it's the really the last period, the last breath of this old generation of politicians ruling the country? And are we at the end of this period? I don't know if we're ever at the end. I think I think societies evolve and you've got democracies which have been much longer standing, well-established, which still go through these kinds of pains. Uh, you've got different but similarly painful issues going on with Brexit and what's going on in the U.S. So I don't think it's unique to uh, more new democracies like I would put I would describe Slovakia as being but it is definitely the fact that Slovakia's democracy is still is still finding its way um, I mean so as you're correctly stated I lived in Slovakia between 1994 and 2000 which was a very turbulent time but a fascinating time and actually thinking back on those days makes me optimistic about what's going on in Slovakia now um, in Slovakia You know, I was thinking about this in recent days about how 1995-96 Slovakia should have been right there with its neighbors entering the transatlantic and European institutions, uh, but because of internal pol- political problems, it was it was left behind. Uh, so the OECD invited Hungary, Poland, and the Czech Republic, and didn't invite Slovakia. And NATO invited Hungary, uh, Poland, and the Czech Republic, didn't invite Slovakia. There was a real risk. The EU would do the same. And fortunately, in 1998, citizens rose up and voted for change. And then Slovakia was able to catch the train with EU accession for 2004, along with its neighbors. And I think that what makes me optimistic is now Slovakia is not behind its neighbors. In some respects, it's ahead. And I think actually... Unfortunately, given the benchmark <laughs> in the region. So... You know, though I think the fact that Slovakia is experiencing its troubles, but relative to troubles in other parts of the region, you know, it's really not, it's not worse and maybe not even that bad. All right. 
Do you think the media and civic society can play a bigger role in the transition to real democracy than it does for now? In the 90s, you've been a co-founder of a couple of media outlets, Slovak Spectator, you're active Slovakia and others. Uh, so um, you also yourself follow the media scene in Slovakia and in the region very closely. Uh, where do you see the role of the media now and probably the future where it's going and impacting the future of our democracy in the region? So media is undergoing change everywhere and and it's really unsure where it's going. I think the difficulty of a place like Slovakia, and it's true of any small media markets, which uh, are often small because of a small, relatively small population speaking a language. Um, so in Slovakia, you know, let's just call it five million Slovak speakers, that's not a massive media market. And so you don't have very strong media companies or media brands. And when that happens, then it's difficult for them to gather an audience, which any media has its power from its audience. And if you don't have a large audience, it's difficult to have power, either politically or commercially or in any other way. And I think that that means that the media are more subject to other pressures, political pressures, commercial pressures, and and therefore they are less likely to investigate the kinds of things that they might investigate if they had real strength. They are less likely to um, cover stories that are not necessarily popular but important. And so they are really trying, struggling, at least when we're talking about private media, they're struggling to chase every euro that they can get just for survival. And that doesn't make for strong independent media. So it doesn't make for strong democracy because you have citizens who are not as well informed as they might be if the media were stronger. And you probably also don't have enough platforms for new kinds of leaders who would want to lead through a new kind of leadership and communication, which doesn't necessarily win you as much viewership, right? So this also creates vacuum in the small markets where people who would want to present themselves through not so populist communication don't find the right outlets because there's no money behind it. Yes, yes, absolutely. And so this is a nice bridge, I think, to your current identity, which is dealing with the women political leaders, where we often like to say um, that women leaders bring a different kind of communication and uh, different kind of yeah values through the communication that they're bringing to the table. How was this career born? How did you end up working on political leadership promotion for women and empowering women to raise up the political ranks? Um, well, <clears throat> excuse me, the seeds of it are actually very, very deep in my um, sort of maturation process as a young adult. I mean, even in, in university, I took a course at my college called Women's Studies 101. <laughs> it was it was about 100 students in the class and about five of us were men. Um, so I must say that it's something, it's not new in terms of my interest in seeing things from other people's perspective and trying to understand how can we have a better balanced society. I mean, I believe nature only thrives when there's balance, right? When you have extremes one way or another, uh, things go wrong. And I think that that's part of what has been the problem that societies have suffered from for millennia is that it's been out of balance, is that leadership, especially political leadership, but it's true of, unfortunately, most forms of leadership have been concentrated with men. And, you know, this summer, I, my family, we visited Japan and we went to Hiroshima. And 
there's an amazing peace museum now in Hiroshima. Yeah, which I've I, been there. You've been there. Okay, great. So you know what I'm talking about. They just actually reopened it in April. So I don't know if you've been since it reopened, but it's it's incredibly well done and very, very moving. And as I was there and with my daughters, I have two daughters and, and they're teenagers, and we were talking about what led to the horrific acts in Hiroshima. And frankly, it was a series of decisions where they just kept ratcheting up. No one was willing to really compromise or give ground. All of those decisions were made by men. Would it have been different if some of those decision makers were women? We'll never know. But I just believe that things have been out of balance, and that's where most of our problems come from. And so when I was given the opportunity to join this organization, which is a network of women politicians striving to increase the influence of women in political leadership, that was very appealing to me, because I think that is one of the most fundamental things. If we can change that, it can start to make things more balanced in many other ways. And so let's throw in some numbers. I don't know if you know any numbers. How many female leaders are we actually talking about? So the name of your organization is called Women Political Leaders, Correct. which is a platform for empowering women to rise up the political ranks. So how many, are, I don't know if you have any targets in mind or any KPIs basically sure. globally because you're present globally, but let's start with the EU. How many female leaders do we have? What's the situation? So. You know, it's a, it's a very good question. Off the top of my head, I, I could count them, but I think in the EU, so of 28 member states, there's something like maybe three heads of state and three heads of government who are women. All right. You know, I, Which I mean, already says it all. Yeah, and, and it's been changing recently, obviously. I mean, uh, Romania had a female prime minister until very recently. Um, Lithuania had a female president until the summer. You know, both of those have changed. Unfortunately, no longer women in those positions. Um, so there are not many, but Denmark had a, a female prime minister elected this summer as well. So, you know, it's, there's some addition, some subtraction, but we're not moving forwards in the significant ways that we need to. Um, in terms of numbers, I can tell you globally that the numbers of heads of state and heads of government globally, it's 6%, women, 6% are women. So 94% of the heads of state and government are men. In parliaments, it's better. But it's still only 24% of parliamentarians around the world are women. And that varies hugely by region. So in Europe, it's actually better. It's over 30%. But in some regions of the world, like the Middle East or the Pacific Islands, it's less than 10%. Which asks for a question about quota. What do you think? Is there, obviously, I guess there's a correlation between uh, how many women get in the game if you have some mandatory targets. Do you see any developments for or against quota globally? Yes. Quotas is often understood as a very simple question, yes or no, sort of on or off. It's not that blunt a implement. You can use it in many different ways to find quotas to have incentives or disincentives. So, for example, in France, the, when the last election, when En Marche you know, had this very resounding victory, um, there was the, the women in the French parliament it rose from, and I'm not going to get these numbers exactly right, but it went from something like 27% to 39% in one election, which is a huge jump in one election. Because the party made a commitment to push Partially. Mark. Partially it was thanks to Omash, but it wasn't only Omash. There were a couple of other things that happened at the same time. There had been a law saying that no longer could French politicians hold two positions at the same time, whereas previously it had always been common that you'd have a local mayor also to be a member of the Assemblée Nationale. So right? they had to choose and this freed up the post for new 
new talents to come in. Exactly. And so a lot of that talent, not all of it, but um, more of it than previously were women who were now having the opportunities that they didn't before. Another thing that happened at the same election in France was that there was a law saying that parties who didn't have a certain percentage of women on their list would, and I forget if it was if they were fined or if they didn't qualify for some economic um, incentives, some some uh, subsidies, whatever. So that's another way. You know, some some of those parties said, well, we're not going to do that, and we'll take the economic consequences. Fine, they can take the consequences. Which is what unfortunately happens, for instance, in Slovakia, often with disabled people when ca- when you can pay instead of employing a disabled person. But at least there's some reason for motivation of the behavior that we'd like to see. And so there are a lot of different forms of quotas that different countries have experimented with, and some of them are are more more successful and not as simple as saying you have to reserve X number of seats in the parliament for women. And so do you also have a dialogue with the political parties directly, discussing this with them and helping them put in place measures which will help them get more talent in the pipeline? Because I think that that's one of the biggest obstacles to the quota policy, that basically you can create any kind of target if you don't have enough women willing to go into this business, really, or industry, or whatever you call it, with all the risks that it entails, the, the goals become irrelevant or backfire because you end up getting people who are not supposed to be there. So you're absolutely right that the parties play a massive role in all of this. We're an organization, we're strictly nonpartisan, and so we actually don't engage directly with parties. We don't even engage in the campaigns of any candidates. That's what we've decided is the way for us to have an impact, is to actually engage with these politicians once they're elected. So so we're hoping that other people who play a different role will take the these various measures, and many of them are, to encourage women to run, train them on how to be successful or, or more successful candidates. Um, what we do is once they're in office, our, what we do is we bring them together. And so we make sure that they build their, their contacts, their networks internationally, and so that they're meeting with their peers from other countries and sharing experiences and best practices so that they can be even better when it comes time for re-election or better in their jobs as legislators as well. So more concretely speaking now that we have the new European Parliament coming in with more women than ever having been elected, what is the message for, if there's any female MEPs listening, what is the message for them? Like, are they supposed to reach out to you and then you will develop a concrete like platform for support for their other women in their parties? Or what? how does the collaboration look? Yeah, so every woman who is elected to a parliament in any part of the world, including the European Parliament and national parliaments, is automatically a member of our network. So they may not realize it yet, Okay. but we do the best that we can to try to get their email addresses and welcome them, congratulate them on their election and welcome them to the network. That's a nice opt-in approach. And so, <laughs> and so they don't have to do anything else. They don't have to become a member or pay a dues or anything like that. They're just, you know, by, they've done the hard work already of getting elected. Um, and so what we do is that we then invite them to various events that we organize throughout the year around the world. Um, and so those events are sometimes large events. Our annual summit has over 400 women leaders attending. Uh, and then we do small events, which might be a breakfast for 20 women leaders. Do you have any research and data 
proving or not proving the correlation between their victory with being a woman or not. I'm thinking now more concretely, for instance, about a case of Zuzana Chaputova in Slovakia, mm. who wasn't really running on the female card. She was running on the promise of new values uh, in Slovak politics and new style of communication and, and really uh, dialogue with the Slovak citizens. So what does it mean really playing the women's card in the elections or not? So I don't think that there are many places in the world yet where a woman has openly campaigned on a platform of vote for me because I'm a woman and been successful yet. I don't think in many places the environments are really prepared for that. Um, I think, you know, Hillary Clinton did a little bit of that. Um, I think she only did it, though, once it became foregone conclusion that she would get the nomination of her party. Then she started to play up the fact that uh, they were getting a step closer to having a woman as president. In the end, you know, she got the most votes, but she didn't get uh, what was necessary to, to win the presidency. Do we have any idea, you know, was it because she was a woman or not? I mean, there are people who have their opinions on that. Very difficult to say. The thing that I conclude from that is that the United States, at least as one large democracy, is now ready for the majority of the population to vote for a woman as their you know, head of state and head of government. That's a huge, that's a huge thing. Um, and Would you have said so about Slovakia last year? Would I have thought that they were ready? No. No, to be very honest. And um, you know both systems equally well. We forgot to explain what's your Slovak story. <laughs> so are you Slovak or not? So I'm, I'm half Slovak. My father comes from Slovakia and my mother is American. Um, I have both citizenships. I've lived in both countries, but you can sense from my accent, it's an American accent. <laughs> That's where I've lived longest. <laughs> so you understand well the Slovak and American political behavior quite well. So it must have been quite a surprise for you as well, right? Well, it was. And, um, you know, huge... It's almost like it's irrelevant that she's a woman. Yeah, which is which is I think, been the case for most women who have had success like yeah. this. I mean, Angela Merkel did not campaign on, you know, vote for my party and you'll get a woman as chancellor. I mean, that was not the case. So... But you're absolutely right. In Slovakia, I didn't see it coming. I actually would not have expected, uh, even pretty deep into the campaign, but I think I had a lot of company with me on this. Not many people saw, even a few months before the election, that this was the likely outcome. And it's hugely to her credit uh, that she that she was successful. But I also do think it's to the credit of the electorate that they also were ready to for change. For change, yeah, and to try something that the country hadn't experienced before. And so what does it mean um, in terms of the strategic advice that you're giving to women candidates, given that you're saying don't run on the women's promise, run on new kinds of communication, let's say? What, what are the qualities of the women leaders that you're actually advocating for and which you would like to all these women leaders to bring to the table? So there was a great story in the Washington Post about uh, President Chaputova's success, um, which basically was saying she did not want to play the same political games that mostly male politicians in Slovakia had historically played of being egocentric, right? So most politicians, certainly most male politicians, uh, tend to talk about themselves and try to show how they are more, better, stronger, whatever, than their opponents. She, and I hadn't realized this till reading this article, but she really, or hadn't thought about it in this way, she really decided, apparently very consciously, it's not about me. It's about the citizens. It's about, the, it's about serving the electorate, serving voters. Uh, I'm, you know, I'm not going to allow myself to get uh, drawn into personal uh, 
name calling and debates. Uh, you know, let's talk about the issues and the things that voters care about, and that's their lives, not my life. What kind of support do women candidates need in order to stay strong in this kind of position? Because if you're the odd one out, it's very easy to be pulled out into the usual way of political communication and the business as usual, which the strategist would tell you wins your votes. So I would love to turn the question to you because uh, you've done it <laughs> in terms of, you know, from what I hear um, from women who run for office, it is... It's difficult. It's difficult. It's a, it's a blood sport, and I think it's true for men and women, but I think in some respects more difficult for women. Uh, and, and I'd like to think that this will change, but I think that the—and social media doesn't make it better. Um, I think that women get judged. Still, there's lots of people's perceptions. You know, the studies about when, when you hear the word leader, what's the picture in your head? Too many people still have the conventional picture of a middle class, a middle aged, middle class, you know, male. Um, and they don't even begin to think that actually leadership can come in different forms. And so I think women suffer from that very sort of unconscious, subconscious bias that people have and, and they're not given the benefit of the doubt and when they're put in front of an audience, um, the audience is judging on far more superficial things a female candidate than they are a male candidate. You know, their dress, their hair, whatever else. Um, and it's, that's, I think, really a hurdle, a barrier that women candidates face that men don't nearly as much. And so do you have any thoughts on what's the solution? Because as you're saying, social media, modern media makes it even more difficult for any woman candidate to first box yourself through these initial layers of judgment and getting through the conversations about how you look and how you dress and where you, you know, what's the social context and family context that you live yeah. in. And it takes a lot of attention by the mo I mean, until the moment comes when you can actually get to the content. I mean, the, the good news is that there are women politicians who have risen to the highest levels who, who are in different shapes and sizes you know, and, and different fashion senses and different hairstyles and things like that. So fortunately, it's not like there is a single mold that has been created saying this is the successful woman politician, this is how they should look. Um, but, you know, it, it's, it's and, and it, how to have those women succeeded, it's been a lot of different stories. I mean, each, each case is probably a story in itself. A lot of it will come from their support networks, though, right? So whether it's the party, you know, I mean, did Angela Merkel rise as high as she did purely on the merits of her own hard work? I don't know if any politicians who get that high do, right? They all have some support networks, whether it's men or women, supporting men or women. Um, I think that she had, she had mentors, clearly, and she had people who supported her in the party and um, was wise enough to seek out those kinds of relationships as well and to use them. So I do think that that's um, the most important thing probably for any any candidate. So Slovakia has national elections coming up in mm -hmm. a couple of months. Uh, what would you say to the political parties if they pretend that they can't find enough female candidates for their list? Nonsense. Absolute nonsense. Absolute nonsense. I mean, I think there are so many women leaders who aren't given aren't given the chance aren't giving themselves the chance they don't necessarily think of themselves as being you know ready for politics suitable for politics um and for whatever reason more men i think this is again historical you sort of 
you, you can't be what you can't see, right? So many men have seen lots of different males paving this, this, taking this path that they might see one that looks like them. And there aren't as many women. You know, in, in the case of Slovakia, okay, so President Chaputov is the first woman president. There has been a woman prime minister, one. And, and so you may, as a woman, say, well, if, if you know, Iveta Radichova is not, I don't see myself as being in you know, her mold, then you may not imagine yourself being in the prime, next prime minister of Slovakia. And that's, that's difficult, but I think you have to get beyond that as much as possible. It's, not, it's easier said than done, but to try to think, okay, look around the world, there may be other examples in other countries, and look in other fields and say, you know, well, okay, here is you know, a vice governor of the National Bank who's a woman, or here is a you know, minister of this who's, who's a woman, and, and that's, that's the kind of role model I think I, I like to follow. What's your message for Commissioner Daly? We now have a new commissioner, Madame Daly from Malta, coming in who will be in charge of equality. She has already communicated that it's going to be one of her targets to also work on supporting women in politics. So what would you tell her? What can she do from the European level? Well, first of all, just the fact that the position has been created, I think, is a great step. It's yeah. acknowledging this is important. And I think she was one who sought the portfolio, right? Sometimes people are given a portfolio that they think is not uh, a prestigious one, but I think this is one that she really said, I can do something with this portfolio. So that's, that's great. Um, you know, I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't presume to give her advice. I think that she's probably got lots of people very capable of giving her advice. But I think that the, the simple advice I would say to her is, is be bold. Don't accept anything less than total parity. Recognizing that you have very little competence to influence this from European level, right? So, so it's a big challenge for European policymakers, also for yourself. You're at the European level, but like, how can you really have an impact on the ground if it's about the male chairman of the political parties taking decisions about who they put on the list and at which place? I, I think it's it's be noisy, be you know difficult. It does require being a bit of a pain. Pain in it. Yeah. <laughs> But I think that's the way change happens, right? I mean, status quo is so comfortable. And if you want change, it's uncomfortable, but it's got to happen. And people have to be willing to, to agitate for it. Yeah, very true. Thank you very much. My pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for listening. For follow-up, you can find us on all major podcast platforms and all social media platforms, including our Instagram, Lights on Europe. So feel free to go there now and leave us your review, likes, feedback, as well as tips on who would you like to hear interviewed next time. Bye!